Welcome to episode 26, season 5 of Ancient Rome Refocused. The title of this podcast is Don't Sacrifice the Storyteller. The following invocation is provided by Helicon Storytelling Theatrical Productions. I pray ye muses, ye celestial choir. Through me sing your tale, and I shall never tire. From the dizzying heights of Mount Helicon descend, tell us your stories, your legends, from start to end. But not the ones of arms and men in that age of gold, no. I want to hear of frogs and knights in lands of old. Let us spin you a tale, one told many ways before. We're telling this live, we have a story to explore. So tell me of Puffjaw, that croaking king. Of Crumbsnatcher, around whose burrows war did ring. We want glory, we want laughter, sadness and song. Come, muses, let us enchant this eager throng. There once was a woman named Haley the Crowd Gatherer. You will notice that I used an epithet. This is an adjective or a descriptive phrase that describes a characteristic of a person. You might have heard of fleet-footed Achilles and the rosy-fingered dawn, dawn meaning the rising sun, not dawn who lives down the street. For the rest of this podcast, I shall use epithets for those that agreed to be interviewed. I shall list their full names at the end. Promise. Now you can call me Rob the Podmaker. Which somehow makes me sound like a coffee machine. So Haley, the crowd gatherer, was walking with Andrew, flame haired, in a very, very old city called Edinburgh. The only way I can describe it, it looks like something right out of Harry Potter. Just a note Edinburgh came first, Harry Potter came after. Haley, the crowd gatherer, and Andrew, flame haired, were having a talk about Greek plays. Yes, I know. Two people having a talk about Greek plays while they're out on a night in Edinburgh where the bars are hopping and everything is going full blast, to me seems slightly out of place. But don't tell me that after hours classes, or at a get-together with your college friends, while having a beer and a slice of pizza at 3 a.m. in the morning, that you never got into a discussion about the meaning of life and why time travel is not worth the bother due to the danger of paradoxes. So talking about the Bacchae is perfectly acceptable. Anyway, this guy and this particular woman 
were talking about ancient Greek plays while they walked by the bars and pubs of Edinburgh going at full swing. It makes sense to me. I've been there. Andrew, the flame-haired. As one does, yeah. <laughs> um, we'd, we'd been to some... So Haley and I have been to Edinburgh quite a few times now. We made this um, habit of going and seeing the most ridiculous-sounding classic shows every year. Because the, the Fringe comes with this like massive booklet of all the shows that are available. So I think the first year we went, we went to go and see this um, secondary school performance of the Iliad that had um, the competition of Paris as a Scylla Black blind dating show. It was this program in like the 70s on North England TV where you'd have a guy would come onto the TV and there'd be three women on the other side of a screen and they'd ask the guy questions. Ladies and gentlemen, it's Blind Date and here is your host, Miss another blind date. Right now, let's meet three eye-catching girls, all hoping to catch our pigger's eye tonight. Come in, the girls! They love you, they love you, they do. Aren't they gorgeous? Yeah. Hello, number one, what's your name and where do you come from? Hi, Stella, I'm Lindsay and I'm from Nottinghamshire. Yeah. That's all, Lindsay. Lindsay, what do you do? I'm an optical technician in a busy optical superstore. Homeric iteration of it, it was Paris coming out to award the golden apple to which of the three gods he was ultimately going to go with. And of course, it was Aphrodite. That's how the Trojan War starts. But it, just, it was done in his most hilarious fashion. It, it worked surprisingly well on stage. In the US, we had our own version of Blind Date. It was called The Dating Game. What Andrew is talking about is the judgment of Paris in classical mythology. It was a contest of the three most beautiful goddesses of Olympus, Aphrodite, Hera, and Athena, vying for the prize of the golden apple. The apple was only to be delivered to the most fairest. Zeus did not want to decide, so he commanded Hermes to lead the three goddesses to Paris. This is Paris of Troy. Yeah, that's right. Let the mortal decide. So let's face it. For Paris, it was not going to end well. Take off two goddesses, especially Hera. Hercules found that out, and it's bound to lead to trouble. Isn't there a biblical saying, there is nothing new under the sun? I did not know it, but all through high school, I was watching the judgment of Paris on ABC. So after that, it was kind of, okay, well, there has to be a weirder show to top that. Um, so every year we sort of went to see these really weird shows and then occasionally some fairly normal bits of classical theatre as well. Haley, the crowd gatherer. So we decided to set up a theatre company called Helican Storytelling. Um, and our mission was to tell stories from the ancient world that people hadn't really heard before. 
we looked at like a bunch of little sort of myths from the ancient Greek world. So we did, um, there's a story about Zeus turning into a swan to seduce one of the many, many ladies that Zeus seduces in Greek mythology. Um, and that was, that was a particularly fun one to do. Um, we did King Midas who gets donkey's ears for offending um, one of the, the gods. He cuts down Apollo's sacred tree. Um, so really silly, fun little stories that uh, don't, don't get told that often, apart from maybe in children's books. Footnote, a little background. Haley and Andrew met at uni. They were both in the Department of Greek and Latin at UCL. That's University College London. The college motto is, Let all come who by merit deserve the most reward. Somehow with a model like that, students in attendance would be the type that would take risks, especially coming from a campus that has a quad that in the center rises up above the street, a Greek temple flanked by porticoed wings from a Victorian age. Augustus Pugin, a Victorian architect of Gothic revivalism, called the architecture pagan, considering the college at the time was constructed without a chapel, and considering that we are talking about two like-minded students immersed in Greek and Latin literature, it is no surprise that they should come from such a campus and decide to perform an ancient Greek poem. Helicon's storytelling settled on what is considered to be an ancient parody of the Iliad. It is called the Battle of the Frogs and Mice, Batrachomyomachia. The Oxford Classical Dictionary describes the poem as a mock epic. It suffices with only 300 verses imitating the language and the style of Homer. Is it Homer? Some have suggested the poem might be Byzantine. The following is a translation by U.G. Evelyn White. This is the beginning, the invocation. Of course, there is a call on the muses for inspiration. First stanza. Here I begin, and first I pray the choir of the muses, to come down from Helicon into my heart, to aid the lay which I have newly written in tablets upon my knee. Fain would I sound in all men's ears that awful strife, that clamorous deed of war, and tell how the mites proved their valor on the frogs and rivaled the exploits of the giants, those earth-born men. As the tale was told among mortals, Thus did the war begin. For you translation junkies, the line, fain what I sound in all men's ears, is a fancy way to say, pleased and willing would I sound in all men's ears. I love that kind of stuff. Haley, the crowd gatherer. But yeah, I guess I definitely, I personally believe that storytelling sort of underpins every element of your life. I mean, if, if you look at all the kinds of media we engage with, whether it's magazines or films or books or whatever, all of those are fundamentally just storytelling. Even the news, it, it, we're just telling stories constantly to each other. Um, you know, when you phone your, your best friend for a natter at the end of the day, you, you, what do you do? You, you tell them, oh, I was doing this today and I saw this person and they told me this. And it's all we're doing all the time as human beings is sharing our stories with each other. Um, so I think it's it's really powerful. And it's when you start looking for it, you, you can see it everywhere. Um, 
so yeah so I, I think and I think storytelling is really it's just really beautiful like when I, I did seen lots of theatre shows and we make the distinction between sort of theatre and storytelling um and I sort of believe that I guess storytelling in the in the theatre sense is sort of a subset of theatre um but I'd seen quite a few professional storytellers uh, as a child and uh, I sought them out as an adult and it, I, I just thought it was incredible that you could go to the theatre or the opera where you'd have you know costumes and music and you know, amazing sets and wonderful acting and all that kind of stuff and it, of course it was captivating but you could also just have a single person in the back room of a pub telling a story with, with just their voice and it would be equally captivating uh, and I, I just think there's something really really powerful about just you know a single person or a group of people just standing there you know telling telling you a story howard hairy faced weaver of words the first performance was um i think i'm right in saying this was at the cockpit which is a theater in um marylebone in London and it was a, a scratch performance so it, it was an evening which had a, about six or seven different performances all having about 15 minutes in front of an audience and that was the first time we were in front of an audience and I think we were surprised how well it worked and how much people seemed to enjoy it the big difference with that performance is that was in front of adults um, and obviously our show was, was geared towards, um, kids. So it was only up in Edinburgh, um, in the actual festival that we, we first performed to our target audience, which was a room full of parents and their children, uh, which was obviously quite different. David. Bringer of Resonance. The first time I was in Edinburgh was with a production of Dante's Inferno, um, which was also produced by Haley, believe it or not. Um, See, she's not telling me these things. <laughs> um, yeah. But, but um, if you had to describe uh, Edinburgh to some American, what would you say about it? Uh, it depends if you're if you're asking about the festival, if you're asking about the city. If you're asking about the festival, I would say I would describe it as, uh, I would describe it as hell. I think. <laughs> I would describe hell? It hell? As, really hell? Yeah, I would describe it as insufferable hell. But if you're talking about the city, I'd say it's beautiful and, and, and really inspiring. I, I I don't I don't I don't react well to crowds. Um, okay, they, I see I see where you're coming from. Uh, uh, yeah. In other words, there's so many people and so many things going on. Yes, and everything is very high energy all the time. And you're constantly being like. Flyers for their shows that you're not going to see. Um, you're constantly being hassled by people for your attention. And... Interactive fairy tale? One on one, very good, very good, aren't they? Okay. They are very good. We saw them last year. Yes. Oh, did you? Oh, yes, right. Sash okay. or no Sash? Right. Okay. Yeah. 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 Yeah.
right, yeah, yes. that's the one, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, well, we're back with new scenarios um, based on classic fairy tales. Um, same kind of thing, the audience become the characters. Uh, and we just had a four-star review from the Scotsman. Excellent, and you're on our radar. Cheers, thanks. Just getting from one end of the city to the other is, is a mission. It's a real mission because, you know, it's uh, it's... There's no way to do it without essentially being blocked off by people that are just insistent on getting, giving you these flyers so that there's a 1% or 0.1% chance that you'll go and see their show. Um, and then if you're with the show, you have to do the flyering as well, which means you have to be the obstacle in other people's way and like try and get their attention and, and shove flyers in their faces and... Taking a punt on a comic you know nothing about And finding it to be brilliant Despite you being the only audience member Seeing small acts that one day become huge Like the little improvised musical group I saw in a porter cabin At the Pleasance Courtyard Over fifteen years ago The buzz of the whole city Meeting comedians in Tesco Eating and drinking way too much Drinking way too much Drinking way too much Though we moan about the flyering, the Royal Mile and the rain We know the locals think our presence really is a pain We promise we'll be back next year The longer we will wish Cause it really isn't August able to bump into anyone they could be someone you saw in a show they could be someone off tv they could be an agent or a producer an agent or a producer we love to play bagpipes as loud as we can as we enter scotland after a seven hour drive from south wales a community of creative curious explorers and pioneers who are drawn together around performance freedom of expression and the absolute joy of experiencing live performance whether you're an artist, audience member, bowl worker or technician weaver of words the edinburgh fringe festival is i think i'm right in saying the world's largest uh, theater festival the entire city gets overtaken by this festival and it's not just the theaters that are putting on shows churches are putting on shows bars are putting on shows restaurants anywhere that has a spare bit of space tends to put on a show when we were up there there was um, a show set in a hairdresser's so one of the hairdressers on the high street for a couple hours a day would be taken over by a theatre troupe doing a show. So there are literally thousands of shows that take place from dawn until dawn. It's a 24-hour festival. There are shows on at all hours. 
And yes, there, there's thousands of shows of all different varieties that go up for the month, the month of August. And um, millions of people visit the city during that festival. And Louise, organizer of fun. So it's a gorgeous city. It's, there's a lot of Gothic architecture. But for the fringe, it kind it does really transform the city. So um, the weather in Scotland isn't amazing, but that's okay because everyone goes up there knowing it will be a bit cold and a bit rainy. And the festival completely takes over the city. So there's a famous road called the Royal Mile, which runs kind of through the centre of the city. And it's up a quite a steep hill. And that is where that's almost the centre of the fringe, because that is where um, performers will go to advertise their show or they might even be performing on the mile in like outdoor stages. And there are street acts and everywhere is covered in posters. It's really, really busy. It's packed all the time. And then in basically every every building that can be a theatrical venue becomes a theatre for the purposes of the Fringe. And that can be like a pub, it can be a cafe, it can be a conference room at a hotel. It's really good fun. There are shows everywhere you look. And yeah, I mean, I've been up there a few times though. So for me, going up with Helicon was actually the calmest experience of Fringe that I've had yet. I think because I've kind of got it out of my system with the other two times. David, bringer of resonance. Um, it's a it's a feeling, it's a vibe, it's an atmosphere that I can understand why some people thrive in it. Um, it's something that I, I find enormously stressful, personally. Uh, I do think Edinburgh is beautiful, and every time I've gone to Edinburgh, I've found the place to be beautiful. Um, and and you know, I've been able to, to 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 enjoy the festival to some degree. You know, it's not like I I hate it, but um, I do think that I prefer Edinburgh when it's not the fringe than when it is the fringe. Andrew, flame-haired. There was a lot of working out what the actual format would be. because It's all well and good to kind of say, oh, let's do a, a Greek storytelling show that's, I suppose, in principle, more similar to how a Homeric rhapsode or like sort of performing poet would actually perform these shows or these performances two millennia ago and it's one thing to say that but then actually to work out how on earth that exists in practice particularly for a modern audience proved to be quite a, a difficult experience um, and the next sort of three or four months were just straight reading looking at different plays finally starting to talk to some actors about how they would go about this sort of thing Hayley, the crowd gatherer. Um, and the whole idea of what we wanted to do is we wanted to be true to how uh, Homer and sort of the ancient Greek bards told stories. So we didn't just want to do um, ancient Greek stories. We also wanted to do um, stories that were told in a way that was true to their original context. Um, so the ancient Greek rhapsodes would, would go around and they would make up stories using um, the 
uh, meter and the, the uh, lines um, to help them sort of improvise these sort of rhapsodes, these songs um, where they tell the story. So we, we wanted to do something that gave us room for improvisation. And um, the Bajrakumaya Maki is not a complete text. Uh, it's, it's all fragmented. So there was quite a lot of space that we could use to sort of come up with our own ideas, our own endings and our own you know, different different ways we could resolve the plot. Um, and it was just really fun and really silly. And that's definitely what we were looking for. Howard, hairy-faced weaver of words. I think it was really driven quite a lot by uh, Haley, who, along with Andrew, uh, run Helicon. And Haley had some experience of going to storytelling events. Her idea was sort of twofold. One, that storytelling is a really fantastic and accessible way of, of conducting a performance. And that perhaps um, it could be more widespread and more utilized as a performance technique where you're not acting, you're not, you're not playing a character, you don't have a set script. Instead, you just have a story that you are, are communicating with other people to an audience, as opposed to learning lines and, and getting deep into character. It's about understanding how you communicate that story in a, in a fun and effective way. Part of uh, Haley and Andrew's idea was that this would be um, improvised, or, or semi-improvised, I should say. We had what uh, Haley and Andrew called story bones, these were the things that were true in each and every performance. So these were the things that have to happen. So you know, if you were to take the, uh, the Iliad, there are certain aspects of that story that have to happen in order to tell the story. But as actors, as storytellers, there are differences that you can make. There are subtleties that you can bring in. There's, there's different arcs that you can focus on. So Haley and Andrew wanted to set up during rehearsals these story bones, these inciting incidents that happen each and every time you tell the story. But how you get to those incidents and perhaps different responses to those incidents could change each time we did a performance so that we could respond to the audience, we could respond to each other as, as storytellers and it would ensure that that story was fresh every time we were telling it, because every time we did tell it, it was different. David, bringer of resonance. Um, and we had a lot of conversations, uh, me and Haley and, and Andrew, and um, a, lot, a lot of it was centered around, you know, <clears throat> A lot of it was centered around not necessarily trying to create a sort of authentic ancient aesthetic in, in any kind of uh, realistic sense, mainly because uh, there's not a huge amount of point in doing that because audiences today, they're a different audience. So the experience, the, the, the sort of the experience for the audience, it, you know, it's impossible to kind of replicate how, how it would have how it would have sounded, let alone how it would have uh, been felt by the audience. But uh, we kind of decided that what we wanted to do was not necessarily mirror the aesthetic of ancient 
you know, Homeric storytelling, but to kind of try and mirror the some elements of the form. So uh, we talked a lot about um, using things like epithets and, and uh, uh, various like sequences in, in the sort of Homeric tradition that are that are sort of word for word copied between different scenes and the idea being that you could construct a sort of library of blocks of things that you can always come back to if, if you need to buy yourself some time in the sort of improvisatory process um so we basically thought that the best way to deal with this musically is to have a kind of similar situation whereby there are two kind of modes one is free improvisation in response to what the storytellers happen to be saying and the other is okay we've landed into this sort of familiar block here is the piece of music that associates with that particular block um and it, i think that the the join between these two um two types of improvisatory uh, performance is relatively seamless whilst obviously we weren't we weren't we didn't have the the idea that what we were doing was anywhere near as kind of um, elaborate as uh, the Homeric poetry that we were sort of inspired by. Um, we were really trying to to just experimentally work with some of those forms. You know, um, if you, I mean, in in this case, because we were working with a story that that was certain elements of it were set in stone, um, it was not particularly difficult. But in a lot of our early experiments, especially in some of our early shows. Um, which were not, which were not around this story exactly, but were around uh, completely improvised stories by storytellers, where none of us had any idea where it was going, or you know, even necessarily who's the good guy and who's the bad guy. And uh, when things, were, and a lot of our early experiments were really centered around this uh, complete freedom of storytelling, whereby everyone is kind of constantly on edge because we're never entirely sure where it's going to go. And if one storyteller decides that now we're going to go into this dance sequence or now we're going to go into this celebration scene or now we're going to go into this death scene um we did happen to have these these pre-existing blocks of sound uh, that we could just throw out there and and essentially buy everybody some time to kind of work out what we're going to do next Haley, the crowd gatherer um, so David and I worked together a couple of years previously. So when I was at uni, I produced the um, classics department uh, play. So every year the UCL classics department put on um, a Greek tragedy or a Greek comedy alternating years. Uh, and in 2015, I, uh, me and some friends, you, you bid for it each year. You have a team, you have an idea. Um, so we bid for the Bacchae by Euripides. And we got it and it was a really great opportunity. So it was in a proper West End theatre. It was, you know, big budget. It was it was great. And uh, we wanted a, a proper, really good music. So we wrote to the Royal College of Music um, where David was studying. And we, we said, you know, we've got this opportunity. There'll be massive audiences, lots of exposure. Um, you know, have you got any sort of musicians who would like to, and composers who would like to work with us? Um, and we had a few applications from people and um, David sent his application in late, actually. Um, <laughs> uh, I was, I'd almost given up on him. And then he sent He said, oh, I'm so sorry, I sent it in late. I, I wanted to perfect it and make it brilliant, which tells you a lot about David as a person. He wants everything to be, you know, absolutely fantastic. Um, 
and his application was just so passionate. He was so interested in the idea. He'd, he'd had loads of his own ideas. Um, so we, we took him on board and uh, David and I became very close friends during that show. Uh, and he's, again, just incredibly talented um, and willing to sort of try new things. He, he doesn't like conventional music. He, he likes trying different things and making interesting sounds and really sort of committing to uh, an idea. Um, so when we came up with the idea for Helican, he was one of the first people that I, I wanted to you know, bring on board. And we talked previously when we, you know, over the years about doing some kind of classics project um, together. So it, I don't think it came as a surprise to him when uh, when we got the call. But um, yeah, he I, I pretty much said to him, you know, I'm I'm not musically gifted in, in any. I can appreciate it, but I definitely can't play or anything like that. Um, and I pretty much said, look, this is this is yours. You know what I want. You know what my vision for the show is. We do whatever you think is is best. Um, and I think he really appreciated having that sort of uh, ability to to take his ideas and just run with them and, and experiment and do some really interesting stuff. The Bakai Sweet Intro. quoting the famous Winston Churchill speech. Oh, um, really? Yeah, the one that starts, uh, we will fight them on the beaches. We, uh... Louise, organizer of fun. And <laughs> I was meant to just do it for one line and then stop, but I kept going. And um, it was, I mean, it was hilarious. And there were like members of the audience who had to chime in and help me get through it. Um, it was really, yeah, it was really good fun. So it's uh, stuff like that. I mean, the whole show was us just messing around with each other, but that was a really good one. Hey, Haley, I, from what I've read that uh, the, the ancient uh, players uh, uh, and playwrights uh, stole from each other constantly and uh, they would uh, uh, point it pointed out that people would hear something familiar in a play and they would uh, they'd say oh yeah that originally was said by so-and-so and and this and that so i don't think you were doing anything wrong i think you just wanted to <laughs> flow yeah if anything it really it really uh worked in the context it was amazing <laughs> um again louise is absolutely fantastic she's really good fun um i knew her at uni but i'd never worked with uh, apart from I think a few years prior oh yeah we were um we did we actually did a children's show together at the fringe about four years before we did Bachelor of Mayamakia and I haven't worked with her since um but she was absolutely fantastic in um the children's show that we'd done which was a, an adaptation of the Jabberwocky um the Lewis Carroll poem um so I, I knew she was really good with kids I'd seen her interact with kids before um so I, I knew they would love her and she would love working with them um, and yeah, she, I, I didn't know if she'd be a good storyteller. And actually when she came to her audition, I was really 
wowed by sort of how good her storytelling was. Um, and she just, yeah, she really, again, very, very talented individuals. Um, but she took her time and she she helped us to sort of see that world that she was creating. Um, and she's got a great sense of humour as well. Um, so that her, her stories were always pretty funny. Howard, hairy-faced weaver of words. Obviously, knowing um, Andrew and Haley from UCL, when they were putting together the um, Helicon team, uh, the Helicon cast, they put out various um, invitations to come and audition, which were hosted at Andrew's house. And he asked, basically, for uh, people coming to audition to bring a story that they wanted to tell. There was no indication at that point about the type of story they wanted or even what era the story was brought from. They just wanted someone to come and tell them a story. So that was the uh, first audition process uh, for the Helicon cast. (laughs) So Howard is fantastic. Uh, He's an actor who I'd worked with a couple of times um, and he'd done his own couple of shows so he's he writes his own poetry um, and he'd done uh, some sort of spoken word type theatre shows and he has a really beautiful quality to his voice uh, and he has that ability to create an incredibly rich image in his head and then describe it in a way that allows you to see it uh, and it, it's his imagery is is just stunning. Like he's really really talented, um, and he has a, just a lovely voice, a lovely quality to his voice. So when he first sort of told us stories in his first audition, we were just sort of there. Like it just made us feel warm and relaxed and cozy. Um, and I thought if he can do that to me as a, as a cynical adult, then you know hopefully kids will love him. Uh, and they did. They 100 percent they did. And quick as a flash. Frog and mouse joined forces. They turned towards the back and ran forward towards the mutual enemies, drawing spear and short sword. Taking her spear, full joy slammed it in to the tail of the snake, meaning that it could not escape. It thrashed about on the mud, unable to move, stuck by the frog's sharp movement and strength as Nick Nutter ran quick like a tree up its tail up to its head its long, skinny neck and three great strikes organizer of fun <laughs> we i mean we would say to people when we were flying they were like if you come you'll get to throw ping pong balls at us you'll have it so um yeah the whole idea was they had to throw them into a box and uh, it was a display of strength and um, the uh, team which had the most ping pong balls in the box at the end of the the thing would be uh, the winners declared the winners um and the kids absolutely loved this it was i mean they just had so much fun i think there's very few shows even at the fringe where you, you're allowed to throw ping pong balls at actors and we made sure they were ping pong balls so they wouldn't hurt us at all um 
but yeah it would it would just be absolute chaos and the other story you know there would always be one of us who held the, the box and you'd be sort of you know trying to work out which bit of the story you needed to say so that it wouldn't be you holding the box and you'd, you'd normally try to dob someone else in you'd say oh and then you know my friend Louise was holding this box and and somebody else do it which was uh, good fun but um yeah it was just they would throw all these ping pong balls at you and and you would sit there and then after a few minutes sort of go and soon the arrows stopped falling they ran out of arrows and of course you know you'd get another round of them throwing at you um, and it, yeah it was just utter chaos but um so we had chaos in every show that was that was part of it um but actually after we'd allowed them to do that they the kids would generally settle back down to sort of hear the next part of the story um but this one show right near the end of our run uh, we just had a, a really rowdy just had there were, there were just loads of kids just full of energy and really really like enthusiastic about the plot i mean they they were shouting the names of the characters and they were doing all this this crazy stuff um and yeah you could just tell they were having a great time um but yeah we we really struggled to sort of keep the story on track um they would just be they realized very quickly if they shouted stuff out or they said things or did things we would incorporate it into the plot into the show and and they i think they just all of them wanted to have a moment where they were the centre of the show. Andrew, flame-haired. So yeah, when the when the first performance worked, like like actually really worked with children, really responding to our storytellers, it was this lovely, lovely surprise. Um, I suppose it's sort of like, like the the thing mid performance that always really stuck out to me is that. Um, the the way we gave all the storytellers these these puppets which were like little frog and mouse puppets and they were used to kind of help dis for, for a child distinguish when the storyteller was being storyteller narrator versus storyteller inhabiting a character they almost functioned a bit like dialogue tags i suppose um it was just something that sort of Haley and i had randomly thought of during a rehearsal once is that you you would put the puppet on your shoulder um, and we had little bits of Velcro on the bottom of them and little Velcro tabs on the shoulders of our actors' costumes so that you could put it on your shoulder, forget it, and then you'd kind of inhabit a mouse by doing sort of like very mousy hand gestures. We we let the children, when, when the puppets weren't being used by the actors for this, we let children in the audience just sort of keep a hold of them because who doesn't want to play with like adorable little puppets? They were great. Um, but sort of within 10 minutes of our first performance, while me and Haley were sort of sitting at the back, like, oh my God, I can't believe it's working. This is amazing. We're having so much fun. You started to see that um, children would immediately put the puppet that they were given and like entrusted to hold, they would put it on their shoulders. Um, and it was, it was absolutely adorable. And I suppose it never really got old. And it's, I know, I'm sure there's some sort of like, oh, it's a high level participation in the atmosphere of storytelling. But they are like adorable puppets. I didn't really blame children for them on their shoulders. It was just so lovely of them to want to get involved in this more. Like it's really participatory. Yeah. Louise, organizer of fun. So we did. We did have uh, one show where there was um, a girl whose real name was Hector. Uh, which was amazing. Um, and there was one section of the show where we uh, select, we would select kids to be the captain of the army. So we'd give them a challenge and then the winner of that became, you know, they would lead the army into battle. And Hector was 
I think, the most enthusiastic uh, captain we had. She came up on stage and was like, she was like giving everyone almost like, it was almost like a hacker, like an intimidating dance to the other side. Um, it was amazing. And we just let her run with it because it really fit within the show. Rob, the pod maker. I can't help thinking about Hector. I'm imagining that the story of her part in the battle of the frogs and mice will be told across the dinner table for years to come. It will be told to prospective life partners, relatives, and as a nostalgic story of her youth as her own children sit around the dinner table. It shall sit in her mind with a warm feeling of the day she led the attack against the frogs with a barrage of ping-pong balls. The classics shall live on in her memory. So what's in her name? What does Shakespeare say? A rose by any other name would smell as sweet. Really, are you sure? Social scientists speak of the Dorian Gray effect that describes how names influence how we are perceived and can even change our physical appearance. In the Dorian Gray effect, names influence our self-perception, even our physicality. Maybe Oscar Wilde's tale of the portrait taking on the base ugliness of its owner can be interpreted that we ourselves can take on the traits of the name we hold. What are the top three female names in the UK? Olivia, meaning olive tree. Amelia, meaning work. Isla, meaning island. All beautiful in themselves, but why not award girls with names that denote power? Themis, meaning wisdom. Iris, meaning messenger. And Nike, meaning victory. Why do you think the running shoe company chose that name in the first place? Let's take back the names of antiquity and name our girls something they can carry into the new millennia. Hector, Hera, Athena. And the most dreaded name of all, something to put fear into any playground bully, Medea. Just a thought. Haley, the crowd gatherer. Oh, and there's lots of classical stories that I'd like to do. Um, I, you know, for a while I had some ideas about doing sort of feminist retellings of Greek mythology. I thought that would be really interesting using our sort of methodology and technique. Um, and again, telling those stories that aren't told often. So not Medea, not Antigone, um, but there are some other really interesting characters in in sort of the Greek corpus. Um, and then something that we started workshopping but haven't managed to follow through with yet um, is what we'd like to do is, is create um, a Roman show. Um, so we focused very much on, on Greek concepts and Greek mythology and the Bachelor Kamayamaki obviously is a Greek story inspired by Homeric Greek stuff. Um, so what we wanted to do was, was sort of look at, I guess, the other pillar of classics, uh, look at Rome 
Um, and the idea we had was um, telling stories around the campfire the night before battle. Um, if you're a Roman legionary, and of course legionaries came from all around the world, it was a real sort of diverse, multicultural um, environment, and people would bring their own stories, they'd bring their, you know, traditional stories um, into the Roman world, and obviously there was a whole corpus of Roman mythology as well, um, although most of that had been poached from other elements of the, the ancient world. So we just thought that would be a really a really interesting environment where stories definitely would have been told um, to tell some of these these sort of different unusual Roman stories and perhaps some of the stories from the lands that the Romans conquered um, over the empire. So that was the story, the next story that we really wanted to tell, um, but we haven't quite managed to get around to that, but watch this space because maybe we will one day. Um, fingers crossed. <laughs> Rob, the podmaker. Haley, the crowd gatherer, is played by Haley Russell. Andrew Flamehaired is played by Andrew Hulse. If you're looking for a story or a production to get your classics on, you can contact Haley Russell or Andrew Hulse at Helicon Storytelling Theatrical Productions. That's Helicon Storytelling at Outlook.com. Or check out their website. David, the bringer of resonance, is played by David Denyer. Those interested in a movie score or music for your play can contact David Denyer, D-E-N-Y-E-R, at daviddenyermusic.co.uk. He composes music for a large variety of forms, from pre-recorded film scores to live performance theatrical productions. Go to his website for examples of his work. Howard, the hairy-faced weaver of words, is played by Howard Horner. Howard Horner is available for stage and film work. He can be contacted at howardhorner.actor at gmail.com. He is represented at the Artistes Collective, that's A-R-T-I-S-T-E-S. Check out his website at spotlight.com. Louise, organizer of fun, is played by Louise Farnell. Louise Farnell is now a production assistant at Rambert on London's South Bank. Rambert is one of Britain's oldest dance companies. You can contact Louise through the professional networking service, LinkedIn. Special thanks to freesound.com. The piece is titled Cinematic Intro 1N15, brought to you by Set Uniman. See you next time on Ancient Rome Refocused. <laughs>